0: Please note, this episode contains graphic details of war crimes and killing that are not suitable for some listeners. Jack Aldrich, a 22-year-old New Mexican with blue eyes and sandy brown hair framing a round face that boasted prominent dimples on each cheek, jumped to the ground, an automatic reflex to the shell that hit the ammunition dump at the airstrip where he was stationed on Baton. Japanese artillery! an American serviceman lying next to Jack stated. Staring toward the now-burning dump in the fading light of the April evening, Jack replied, they'll be here soon. An officer came by, barking urgent orders. Gun batteries, destroy your weapons. More explosions soon rocked the small dirt airstrip as the 200th Coast Artillery blew up their guns and equipment so that the arriving Japanese forces could not use them. Their weapons destroyed, Jack and several other men set out on foot into the nearby hills. Shrapnel from the still-burning ammunition dump continued to fly in the air around them. They could hear the rumble and squeal of enemy tanks on the road below them and ducked deeper into the baton jungle. The men walked for hours as darkness fell and their path became obscured by the night. The exhausted men had stopped for a 10-minute rest when a 7.6 magnitude earthquake rattled them, as if nature herself was telling them to continue moving. They did, stumbling through the dark jungle for hours. Eventually, clouds overhead parted and moonlight lit their way. They could see well enough now to make their way down to the busy, crowded road below. That, at least, was still in US hands. But they didn't know where they were. Was the Kakaban airfield ahead or behind them? They stumbled down the road through the masses of southbound Americans and Filipinos, asking servicemen they came across, What outfit are you? At last, someone answered, 200! Relieved, the exhausted men fell to the ground and slept. They'd found their unit, but it was anyone's guess what the morning would bring. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, al was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This is the third of four episodes focusing on the experiences of the Bataan Death March. And today we'll meet two brothers, Jack and Bobby Aldrich, who joined the same military unit, fought together on Bataan, and marched together on the Death March, only to be separated at POW camps in Japan. I had the pleasure of speaking with cousins Suzanne Delaware and Jean Gary, who are the daughters of Jack Aldrich and Bobby Aldrich, respectively. You'll hear from both ladies throughout the episode as they tell their father's stories. In fact, these delightful women shared so much fantastic information that I've had a very difficult time picking and choosing what to include. Let's jump in. Jack Aldrich was born in Alva, Oklahoma in August 1920. Two years later, in July 1922, his brother Robert, or Bobby as he was called, joined the family. Jack and Bobby were the only children of Ross and Grace Aldrich. Their father, Ross, was a telegraph operator when his sons were born in the early 1920s. But by 1930, he relocated the family to Bellin, New Mexico, a rural town about 30 miles south of Albuquerque, where he worked as a clerk for the railroad. While living in Bellin, the brothers, who were around 10 years old, give or take a couple years, found an interesting way to make some money Jack's daughter, Suzanne Delaware, told me.
1: When they, you know, they lived there, the train station was just really close, about a block, I guess. So they, he and Uncle Bobby used to go down to the train station and somehow they'd borrow a donkey and they'd get up on the donkey and they'd wear big sombreros and the tourists would take pictures and give them money. (laughs) Sometimes the tourists would egg them on to wrestle So they'd get down, they'd be wrestling, and again, the tourists would give them a little money. I think
0: they were pretty active little boys. The boy's father continued working for the railroad throughout the Great Depression. And during that time, the railroad moved the Aldrich family several times within New Mexico. They had settled in Clovis, which is about 10 miles from New Mexico's eastern border with Texas, by the late 1930s. Jack was an active student during his high school years. Here's Suzanne again.
1: In high school, he was on the swim team. During the summer, he was a lifeguard. He was also on the gymnastics team. And when they would have uh, parades, he would do like somersaults and flips in the parade with some other gymnasts.
0: 1940 was a year of big changes for the Aldrich brothers. That spring, 17-year-old Bobby graduated high school. Jack had been accepted to art school in St. Louis, but, well, life went a different direction. The brothers enlisted in the New Mexico National Guard 200th Coast Artillery, likely in late spring or early summer 1940, just after Bobby graduated high school. Bobby lied about his age to join the army because, as his daughter Jean Gary told me, he couldn't let his older brother go and do something without him. By August 1940, the brothers were in training at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. Here's Jean reading from a letter that the brother's mother, Grace, wrote to family members.
1: The boys were in the National Guard and they were inducted into the regular army before going to Fort Bliss, Texas. You see the 200th was an entirely new outfit. It had been a cavalry unit but was converted into Coast Artillery.
0: The boy's mother was surprised by their decision to join the Army. Here's Jean again.
1: Uncle Jack said to her, Mother, you know how cold it gets here in Clovis. Well, our uncle has invited us to spend the winter with him in El Paso. (laughs) And so that's kind of how he told her that he was gone. And then my dad said to her, Mother, when you hear the ice plant whistle, one long and three shorts, I won't be home for lunch. And she said, what in the world would the blowing of a whistle have to do with you being hungry? And he said, the day of immobilization. Bobby, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> I have joined the National Guard. You see, he really wasn't old enough, but thought a few weeks wouldn't matter, so when he really was 18, he was officially 19. Little did he know all this meant
0: the 200th Coast Artillery was, by January 1941, considered one of the premier anti-aircraft regiments in the Army and was called into active duty. A former member of the unit recalled,
2: We were a cross-section of New Mexico. Professors, students, miners, lumberjacks, cowboys, rodeo performers, sheep herders, farmers, bus drivers. We had Navajos, Pueblos, Apaches, and Zunis and everyone performed hundred and twenty percent.
0: Jack, an incredible typist, became the battery clerk. Bobby eventually became a staff sergeant of communications in the 200th. In August 1941, so just a little over a year after joining the military, the Aldrich brothers and the 200th Coast Artillery headed west to San Francisco. There, they boarded a ship, not knowing where they were headed. Bobby's daughter, Jean, shared.
1: My dad and his mom worked out a code because he was in charge of communications and stuff. He knew that letters would be censored, so to speak, because they couldn't say where they were going. They couldn't do all that stuff. So they worked out a code. And so by using these words in his letters, she would know where, they, where he was. And if he ever mentioned San, that was the Wake Island's. Beads meant Guam, and wooden bowl meant the Philippines. So he wrote a letter to her, talking to her about a wooden bowl. She knew he was going to the Philippines based on that.
0: The 200th was indeed going to the Philippines. They were stationed at Clark Field when Japan attacked it on December 8, 1941. The men of the 200th were the first to fire on the Japanese airplanes that day. That was the first time 21-year-old Jack felt true fear. He recalled,
3: You get a strange metallic taste in your mouth. I didn't know what fear was until that day.
0: Jack, Bobby, and the 200th withdrew to Bataan with the rest of American and Filipino forces in early January 1942. They were ordered to protect the Bataan and Cubcabin airstrips, both of which were on the southeastern part of the Bataan Peninsula. Jack was stationed near the Bataan Airstrip when the Japanese launched their final assault on April 3, 1942. The enemy quickly broke through the American-Filipino lines and moved south as Allied servicemen and women and civilians fled before them. Jack recalled,
3: We were still at Bataan Field waiting for orders when a shell hit our ammo dump. We knew the Jap artillery would be there soon. The gun batteries started destroying their weapons and we loaded the regimental records and our barracks bags onto a truck which took off at top speed we never saw it again we followed on foot along the mountaintop shrapnel from the dump was still flying and we could hear the clank and squeal of jap tanks on the road right below us and sporadic small arms fire we took cover in the rainforest moving fast and stopping briefly to discuss our situation in whispers About dusk, a loud blast ahead and an explosion behind made us hit the dirt. A 75 mounted on a half track was firing over us. Don't shoot! We're Americans! We yelled. They told us to shut up, waved us on, and continued firing. At a cross trail, an MP told us to keep moving. The Japs were right behind. In the night, we stopped for a 10 minute rest. That's when the quake hit. Then we went on. We had to join the regiment by sunrise. Later, the clouds broke and the moonlight enabled us to angle down the mountain toward the bay. The road was jammed, and at one stream the vehicles were mired in deep ruts, and we got caught in a vehicle-pushing detail for two hours. Finally, they let us go on. We didn't know where we were or where the regiment was, and we kept yelling in the dark, WHAT OUTFIT ARE YOU? At last, someone answered, 200! We dropped on the ground and fell asleep.
0: Jack Aldrich had reached Cacobin airfield. He was among the last of the 200th to arrive there. The next morning, April 9th, rumors started spreading. General King was surrendering Bataan. A jeep trailing a white flag and carrying two of General King's surrender emissaries had passed by Jack Aldrich around sunrise as he awoke at the airfield. If you're interested, episode 24 covers the details of General King's surrender. Although the men had seen it coming, surrender was a shock. American servicemen couldn't believe that the Stars and Stripes wouldn't prevail. Battle-hardened men openly cried in humiliation. Some, including Jack Aldrich, still wanted to fight.
3: We were prepared to sell ourselves dearly that day. The chaps didn't know how lucky they were when King surrendered we were sure that even if they did surrender us, it would only be a month at most before the Yanks would be in there.
0: But surrender had happened, and now Jack and Bobby were prisoners of war. The scenic Copcabon airfield soon became chaotic as hundreds, even thousands, of American and Filipino servicemen continued to pour out of the jungles. Japanese tanks, trucks, and soldiers soon arrived. The Japanese lined up the American and Filipino prisoners. One POW remembered,
4: They had their pistols ready and I expected to be shot, but they started with stealing jewelry, watches, cigarettes, anything of value.
0: Another POW shared that a Japanese soldier
5: made me open my mouth and looked at my teeth. He held a pair of pliers. I saw him pull on the teeth of several American soldiers. The pliers had blood all over them.
0: The Japanese soldier was looking for gold fillings. But, this POWs were probably too small to be worth anything, and the soldier didn't take the man's teeth, instead, kicking him and shoving him aside to continue the gold-tooth quest. After looting the POWs, the Japanese herded the American prisoners in a field for the night, with no food or water. During surrender negotiations, the Japanese leaders promised that the POWs would be treated humanely.
2: We're not barbarians.
0: Japanese Colonel Nakayama had told General King at surrender. Earlier, Japanese propaganda leaflets dropped over baton had promised that the POWs would be treated in accordance with the Geneva Convention. But from the beginning, that wouldn't be the case. One POW witnessed a horse-mounted Japanese cavalry unit chasing a couple of American POWs and, quote, ran them down with their horses just for fun," close quote. Another POW recounted watching a wounded Filipino soldier in an upper body cast embrace, trying to climb into a truck. But the Japanese guards hit him off with clubs. Then a guard jerked the body cast off the man and blood started spurting everywhere. When the Filipino again tried to get on the truck, the guard shot him with a rifle at point blank range His body fell into the road. The witnessing POW said,
4: I saw seven heavy trucks driven by Japanese drive over his body. For 15 or 20 minutes, I heard an almost constant stream of trucks run over his body. When the Japanese herded us down the road, all that was left of his body was a pile of plaster of Paris, bones, and hair in a pool of blood.
0: And that was day two of captivity. The next day, the prisoners from Maravellas arrived. Some 35,000 prisoners of war left the southernmost town on Bataan, about nine miles west of Cacobin Airfield, on the morning of April 10th. Historians Michael and Elizabeth Norman wrote.
2: During the first few days of walking, there were so many men on the road, one bunch followed closely behind another. They appeared a procession without end, prisoners as far as the eye could see, mile after mile of tired, filthy, bedraggled men, heads bowed, feet dragging through the ankle-deep dust.
0: The Aldrich brothers started their march from Cubcobbin Airfield, thereby missing the first nine or so miles and ultimately having a slightly shorter march than the men who set out for Marvellus. All along the route, groups of Filipino and American prisoners caught in the jungle and other areas on Bataan joined the march. Jack, Bobby and their fellow marchers followed the main national road that went north paralleling the eastern Bataan coast. They marched in groups, three to four columns per group, 100 to 200 men per column. Guards with 15-inch bayonets attached to their rifles accompanied each group, urging stragglers forward with jabs in their backs. Jack Aldrich recalled,
3: We were denied food and water and made to march at a gate that kept the Japs with us at a dog trot. When they were replaced by guards on bicycles, we were pushed faster. And that was when the hot sun and lack of water and food began to take its toll. And guys already weakened by disease and hunger from the baton campaign began to fall by the side of the road.
0: Fallen men were bayoneted and left for dead. One marcher witnessed a fellow prisoner fall to the ground. A guard kicked him and ordered him to stand, but when the young man got only to his knees before collapsing again, the guard kicked him harder, then placed his bayonet to the fallen man's throat, pushed it in, then jerked the blade free. As the guard walked away, the young prisoner lay still, bleeding out in the dirt. Such scenes played out hundreds of times as the march continued. Another POW recalled,
5: I remember one boy who was ill and stopped on the march. He was ordered back in line by a guard. The boy tried to explain to the guard by pointing at his stomach. The guard shot him in the stomach.
0: A few men, however, escaped such treatment. I got
4: to the side of the road and fell, holding my stomach. There came a Jap with his bayonet. I moved quick. That bayonet slashed down. I got up and ran, stomach or not, and he came after me hollering, I ran till I got to the middle of that column.
0: Soldiers in Japanese truck and troop convoys coming the opposite direction would hit the prisoners with rifle butts or bamboo sticks. A newspaper later reported a death march survivor's experience.
2: A guard came down the line, vindictively striking prisoners with a rifle butt. The man directly in front of me was severely beaten because he was still wearing his helmet while most of the marchers were bareheaded.
0: History is asked, since this horrific war crime came to light, why the Japanese were so cruel to the prisoners, especially the American POWs. I explained a few potential reasons in the last episode that was number 28 about Ray Hunt. These reasons include that the guards were young men trying to show their worth and indoctrinated with the idea that a man who surrendered was worth nothing, lower even than an animal. To these, we can add at least two more reasons, retaliation and racism. First, retaliation. Japanese forces suffered heavy casualties during the Battle of Bataan. One Japanese regiment entered the Bataan campaign with nearly 3,000 men. By the end, it numbered fewer than 650 men. That's a loss of more than 80% of that regiment. Japanese units fought to complete annihilation rather than surrender. Thus, the Japanese suffered extremely high casualties, especially when compared with the American and Filipino forces they were fighting. Also, capturing the Philippines took the Japanese much longer than they had originally expected, and that was due to the strong Filipino and American defense. Japan had to send reinforcements of soldiers and equipment to the Philippines, reinforcements, that they had initially intended for other Pacific invasions. That strong Allied defense of Bataan ultimately prevented the Japanese invasion of Australia, and Japanese leadership wasn't happy about that. So, both of these factors played into a retaliation mentality. Furthermore, Japanese soldiers seemed to go out of their way to humiliate American prisoners in front of Filipinos. This was likely an attempt to show the Filipinos that the Americans were weak and nothing. And this brings us to the subject of racism, which is an interesting and complex topic. Here's a bit of oversimplified Japanese history. In the late 1800s, an industrializing Japan sought to join the world's imperialistic powers, namely the United States and Britain, but, By the early 1930s, those Western powers deliberately sought to restrict Japan's rise. These actions confirmed to Japan that the West was trying to push Japan down because its people were Asian. Japan itself already had its own notions of where Japanese people fit in the world's social order, at the top, as the most superior people on the earth. This belief extended to all of Japan's enemies, from the Chinese to the white Americans and British. Historian Mark Felton wrote,
5: As Caucasians had dominated Asia before 1941, it was they, according to Japanese thinking, who had tried to subordinate the Japanese, and who had refused to recognize Japan's legitimate right to be a great power. Thus, from the Japanese point of view, World War II was literally a race war, When Tokyo's initial victories in 1941 put the boot on the other foot, Japanese troops were quick to use it to stamp on the white man's face. The widespread barbarity and cruelty practiced by the Japanese forces were clearly indicative to that hatred and loathing, and perhaps a deep-seated inferiority complex many Japanese soldiers harbored toward their white foes.
0: Gavan Dawes, an American historian, wrote in 1994,
4: By 1941, the Japanese were ready to take on the white world in war, and they truly did not care anymore what the white man thought of them. They had torn the Geneva Convention to pieces. White men could go to hell, and the Japanese would be the ones to send them there.
0: So Japan indoctrinated their young soldiers with ideology that Japan was the master race, who would rule over all Asian countries and cultures, and perhaps the world, Add in the fact that the Japanese captured so many thousands of American prisoners on Bataan, well, to them, that just proved their point that they were in fact a superior race. From Cucaban Airfield, Jack and Bobby Aldrich would have marched nearly 30 miles north to the top of Bataan Peninsula. They then followed a roughly northeastern direction along roads that took them to the town of San Fernando. I've put a map of the Bataan Death March route on the left-behind Facebook and Instagram profiles. They stopped at the town's train station, where their captors shoved them into hot, airless, 200-square-foot boxcars, packed tight with 100 men standing shoulder-to-shoulder. Here's Jack Aldrich's daughter, Suzanne.
1: He told me, you know, they just watched men die right there because there's no air. They were packed in there so tightly. But they had the doors open so they could get air, and all of a sudden, something kept hitting them. Ow! Ow! What is that? Ow! Well, the Filipino people had lined the trains and were throwing fruit into them.
0: The train took them north, where they entered Camp O'Donnell, a former Filipino training camp that was in no condition to accept some 75,000 prisoners. Disease ran rampant at the camp, and Death March survivors died at staggering numbers. After about six weeks at O'Donnell, Jack and Bobby Aldrich were transferred to the Cabanatuan POW camps in June 1942. The first months at Cabanatuan were disease filled and grueling. Jack recalled
3: There were so many people dead and dying in camp, I felt I had to get out of there. Work details were the best, so I volunteered for that.
0: Work details were out-of-camp assignments to work on various projects like road or airstrip building. Jack's work detail built a runway in Las Pinas, around 13 miles or 22 kilometers south of Manila. Jack recalled,
3: Sharp objects in the gooey mud made foot injuries common as we built runways over rice paddies. When we failed to meet our quota, the Jap Poncho jumped on our crew chief and broke his watch with a stick. The next day, he broke his arm. We screwed up, every way we could. Surveying crews gave wrong readings, we threw loose dirt in the depressions with no stable base. The runways were never even. We left diesel equipment in the rain.
0: About a year after arriving at Kabanatuan, Bobby Aldrich was part of a POW group transferred to the Omuta POW camp on Japan's Kyushu Island. Bobby and his fellow POWs were the first group to arrive at the newly opened camp. Over the next two years, more than 1,200 additional POWs, including British, Dutch, and Korean men, arrived. The POWs at this camp worked a mine that was owned by the Mitsui Mining Company. Bobby's daughter, Jean, recalls a couple of camp experiences that he later shared with her. He
1: talked about being down in the mine and there was telephones down there that the guards would use periodically to call up and learn find out what time it was, how much longer they had to work. I think they worked like 10 days straight and one day off or something like that. So he and a buddy when the guards weren't around would go to the telephone and call up. They learned the Japanese and they would call up to find out how much more time they had. And they were caught. They were taken to the superiors. And they looked at the other guy and they said, are you trying to learn Japanese? And the guy said, yes and they killed him. And then they looked at my dad and they said, are you trying to learn Japanese? And he said, no, I'm just trying to understand it. And so he wasn't killed. For whatever reason, he was spared. One time he was near an ocean or something and a little Japanese child was struggling in the water, drowning, and he broke whatever he was in and and went in and rescued the child and he was given a care package from home because he did that, so they thanked him for
0: that. The mine work was exhausting and backbreaking. A newspaper article later reported, From August 9, 1943 to August 24, 1945, Aldrich swung a pig thousands of feet below the ground. He and other prisoners were rustled out of husk-stuffed mattresses at 4 a.m. They worked rotating shifts, each 12 hours long, and worked 9 of 10 days. Aldrich subsisted on a diet of rice and mullet. He figures it was about 900 calories a day. Such work and harsh treatment nearly broke Bobby's spirit. Jean shared, My dad talked
1: about one time being in the in the prison camp, and almost being at his wit's end. He just started praying, and he said, I just don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can continue on this way. And he said, as he was praying, a butterfly, a light blue butterfly, came and landed on his shoulder. And he said at that point, he knew he was gonna survive. And so that just kind of sheared him up again, strengthened him to continue going towards survival.
0: On August 6th, 1945, Bobby Aldrich witnessed the flash from the atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki about 40 miles or 64 kilometers away from his camp. It gave him scar tissue in his eyes. Not long afterward, the 23-year-old was liberated from the POW camp. On August 24th, he began the journey home, leaving the city of Nagasaki by train. A poignant photograph captured the moment, showing him with fellow GIs at the train yard. Pointing to a skinny figure on a stretcher, Bobby told a reporter,
4: See the skinny guy on the stretcher? The one with the coffee mug? That's me.
0: I've tried to find that picture, but I haven't been able to do so. But while he was holding that coffee mug, a female reporter came into camp. Jean continued,
1: When the war was over and the first person that walked into one of the prison camps was a reporter and the first time he saw a woman he's holding a cup of coffee between the two palms of his hand and a donut on each finger and that's the first time he saw a woman in three and a half years and he said i didn't know what i wanted more was the donut or the woman <laughs> I don't know. he just always added a little bit of sassiness to kind of make you chuckle
0: jack aldrich remained at cabanatuan for about a year after his brother left Jack was transferred to Japan as part of a ship convoy, which I believe included the hill ship Hokusin Maru. Departing from Manila on October 3, 1944, the convoy carried 1,100 prisoners. Their journey was far from smooth. While anchored in Hong Kong for 10 days, likely without the POWs being able to disembark, the convoy was attacked by American planes. The remaining convoy continued to Taiwan, and the exhausted men disembarked on November 8th, more than a month after they'd been loaded onto the ship in Manila. Life on board the ship was a nightmare. Food was scarce and water was a luxury some days. Jack recalled,
3: We were packed so close together that we couldn't sit down. It was unbearably hot. The toilet facilities were a five gallon bucket for over a hundred men. They only had two of those buckets. When the bucket was full, they would toss it overboard and then they would fill it up with water. Guys were drinking this sewer water. They cut their wrists and drank their blood and attacked each other. These hell ships were worse than the death march.
0: Jack's brother Bobby had also spent time on a hell ship and later told his daughter Jean.
1: Riding in the hell ships during that time, we drank our own urine because we were so thirsty, but urine is phosphorus, so in the dark, darkness of the bow of the ship somebody would burp and there'd be a flash of light because you're in
0: phosphorus. Jean said that was another example of her father adding in a light hearted detail about the awful things he went through and honestly I'm not certain whether to laugh or be disgusted. Well back on board the Hokusin Maru Jack found a spot in the corner of the ship. The
3: saving factor to me was there was a crack in the steel plate on the ship, and I could look out and see the stars, and a cool breeze would come in every once in a while. I wouldn't have changed that spot for anything in the world.
0: For 10 months, Jack was held at the Kosaka POW camp in the northern area of Japan's main island, about 400 miles or 645 kilometers north of Tokyo. POWs at this camp mined and smelted copper, Life in the camp followed a harsh routine, with a break allowed only once every 47 days. On these rare days off, the men, those who had clothing, washed the few items they possessed. As the war's end neared, the sight of American bombers over the camp brought relief, suggesting that deliverance was near at hand. News of Japan's September 2nd, 1945 surrender reached the camp when a Navy bomber dropped a colored streamer with a note that read, The war is over. Japan has surrendered. Finally, on September 11, 1945, Jack and his fellow prisoners were liberated. When asked what he looked forward to doing when he got home, Jack answered,
3: I just want to go home and die on clean sheets.
0: He later reflected,
3: I'm happy to have cheated the Japanese out of my additional years of life.
0: But liberation came with a heavy responsibility. Many prisoners had made a promise to those who did not survive to tell the world about the horrors they endured. Jack recalled,
3: I heard so many guys die and dying say in their last breath, If you make it home, tell them like it was. Let them know what happened.
0: But Post war silence was a hallmark among veterans, and Jack, at least in the first years after the war, seems to have been no exception. In his later years, he told a newspaper
5: We
3: kind of let the families know we did without some food and lost some weight, and we worked hard and that type of thing. But we didn't really start the conversations. It was many years, as a matter of fact, before even my children realized I had been a POW.
0: When Jack arrived back home in the United States, he convalesced at a military hospital in Santa Fe, New Mexico. A young nurse named Mildred Harrell eye. their daughter Suzanne, told me.
1: My mother had just finished nursing school in Memphis, Tennessee. The day that she graduated, she was inducted into the Army as a second lieutenant nurse. And then they sent her to Santa Fe. Well, I guess Santa Fe was quite the place to be. All these young men, home, thankful the war's over and happy and celebrating. And he didn't have to stay in bed. He could go out as long as he came back to sleep there. So uh, mom and dad, they would go out and close down the nightlife and uh, he would go back to the hospital, go to bed. She'd go to her apartment with other nurses, but she had to be back at work at six. So they'd close the bars at 2, and she'd be back at 6, and he'd be sound asleep, cozy in his bed. (laughs) Which she never let him forget.
0: In May 1946, Jack and Mildred married, and he was discharged from the U.S. Army later that year. The couple settled in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they raised three children. Jack became an accountant, and Mildred continued working as a nurse. Here's Suzanne again.
1: He was a handsome man. Uh, I loved his family, upbeat and positive. He liked to make us laugh with silly little rhymes and things. Um, he, I think, is very well respected in uh, his own circles. And he was a great public speaker. People just loved him. And, you know, he, um, I believe he was instrumental in starting the Baton Veterans Organization. And that was a big part of my parents' lives. My father, he would go to conventions all over the United States.
0: Jack was indeed active in the POW organizations during the 1950s and 60s and well beyond. And he started sharing more about his war experiences. He expressed,
3: It's been my experience that most don't know what's happened, because World War II in modern day history books is a page or two. I think they should know what their families went through.
0: He took on leadership roles in veterans organizations. In 1953, he became the commander of the state's Bataan Veterans Organization. Jack's children came to realize the significance of their father's POW history through his work with those POW organizations. Suzanne also remembers an interesting event when she was in high school.
1: I wanted to get an A in my high school history class. And uh, so I went to my teacher and I said, my father was a prisoner of war. Would you like to have him come speak? She said, oh, that would be very good. So I asked him and he said, sure, I'll do that. So we went in and the principal greeted us and he said, there's been a change in plan. We need you to go to the gymnasium. So we did, of course the whole school was there. (laughs) And my father shared his experience to some extent. And of course he got standing ovation from my whole high school.
0: In 1985, Jack's beloved wife, Mildred, passed away due to a brain tumor. It was devastating for Jack, and Suzanne recalled,
1: But my father, he retired early when it all occurred to take care of her. He did everything. It was a very hard time. But she was able to host his retirement party, which was so nice. I mean, by this time, she had trouble speaking and every complications
0: that come with that.
1: He loved her very, very much, and she adored him. So it was a good marriage. In
0: 1991, Jack married Dorothy Cave. They met while Dorothy was researching her book, Beyond Courage, about the 200th Coast Artillery's experience during World War II. 93-year-old Jack Aldrich passed away on April 1st, 2014. He was laid to rest at the Santa Fe National Cemetery with his wife, Mildred. After his death, Jack's children donated many of his wartime items to the New Mexico Military Museum in Santa Fe. And the museum's collections manager...
1: She surprised me by saying, I want you to come into this government building. So we walked in. She had done a complete exhibit on my father. You know, you look in and you see like his helmets there, his canteen. A vest he wore as a BVO, his pictures, pictures of Uncle Bobby and my mom. I just almost started crying. I was so touched.
0: That exhibit is currently on display at the Bataan Veterans Building in downtown Santa Fe until spring 2024. So if you find yourself in Santa Fe, stop by and visit. And if you're lucky, maybe Suzanne will be there too. Back in 1945, while Jack was recuperating at Brun's Hospital in Santa Fe, on those clean sheets he'd hoped for, something happened that would change his life. His son, Jack Aldrich Jr., told me,
6: There were many instances uh, of loud noises, yelling, shouting, dishes being thrown across the room in the ward next to Dad's room at the hospital. It became so disruptive that dad finally asked his nurse, who later became my mother, to find out who that so-and-so was who was making all the racket. So my mother went to the adjacent ward to find out who that was. And when she returned to update dad, she said, you're never gonna believe who that person is, who's making all that noise. It's your brother, Bobby, back in the U.S. Uncle Bobby vowed he would never eat rice again for quite a while. Whenever it was served to him in any form, he would just throw his player ball against the wall. This was a bit problematic because in New Mexico, Mexican food is usually served with rice and beans. But this changed over time. This event is really quite significant, as both Dad and Uncle Bobby believed individually that their brothers were dead. No one had told them that they had both survived the impossible and in typical military fashion, they were assigned rooms in alpha order, which explains why they were in adjacent rooms, but in different wards.
0: While in the hospital, the brothers also learned that their beloved mother had passed away 18 months previous in April 1944. For a year and a half, their father had dealt with grief of losing his wife and not knowing if his sons were still alive. The news of his mother's passing struck Bobby hard. He and his mother were extremely close. Bobby's daughter, Jean, said,
1: They didn't know that until they got back to the States and saw their dad and they were looking for their mom. It was heartbreaking to them. Because even when my dad was in the hospital, before he saw his daddy, he was still writing letters to both mom and dad. So, yeah, it was heartbreaking to come back, and I know that was tough on them.
0: Beyond his mother's loss, post-war life for Bobby Aldrich was marked by profound challenges. A newspaper article explained,
2: He left the POW camp at 23 on a stretcher. He didn't walk out of U.S. hospitals until he was 28. Tuberculosis and the beatings with fence post-sized sticks carried by guards kept him flat on his back for years.
0: His daughter Jean shared with me.
1: He spent a lot of time in the hospital afterwards. I think he was 96 when he, 96 pounds when he was came out of the POW camps. He used to say he could reach in his stomach and bend over and touch his spine. He was in the hospital. They took bone out of his right shin and put it crisscross in his knee. So they fused his knee and they fused his lower spine. And when they fused his knee, they said, when we fuse this, you can either have it bent or you can have it straight. If it's bent, you're going to be in the wheelchair for the rest of your life. If it's straight, you probably could walk. They didn't give him much hope after the war. They're like, you're never going to have kids. Just don't get your hopes up for a normal life. He wanted his legs straight so he could walk. So he walked with a limp.
0: Keep in mind, Bobby was just 23 years old when he was being told all of this. In June 1950, he married a woman who he met while studying English at the University of New Mexico. The couple had a son together before divorcing. After graduating college, Bobby worked as a technical writer for the military. And Bobby later met a woman named Frances. Their daughter, Jean, shared. My
1: mom worked on the schematics of the atomic bomb in New Mexico. Now they weren't married. They didn't even know each other. So the joke was always that her clearance in the military was higher than his clearance. You know, when you think about working on something like that and you don't even know that it's going to actually free your future husband, it's just kind of, Mind boggling to me. <laughs> they met when he was probably 38. She would have been about 33 or 34. They met in a bar in New Mexico, in Albuquerque. They met on a Monday. He proposed Tuesday and they got married Friday of the same week. And it lasted 28 years when he died. To me, he was my world. He was very special. He had a great sense of humor. He loved people. My friends in high school would come over, they called him the general, because he just commanded, you know, respect, but he was never tough. He was just a great guy. I think if you talked to anybody that ever met him or been around him, you would get that stories.
0: In August 1987, Bobby, who at the age of 65, could not straighten to his full height and relied on a cane to walk, filed a lawsuit against Mitsui & Co., the, quote, international descendant of Mitsui Industries, the coal company Aldrich says used his work as slave labor, close quote. The lawsuit aimed to secure back pay for approximately 4,000 former POWs, including Bobby, who had endured similar conditions. The lawsuit was part of a broader context where countries were reckoning with their wartime actions and making restitutions to war victims. The U.S. Senate had approved settlements for the Japanese-Americans interred during the war, and Germany had reached a settlement with former POWs in their country. Bobby told a newspaper,
4: My God, if we'll settle with these people, what about us? I want Mitsui to say they were wrong. I don't know how I wound up in their camp, but I worked slave labor for two years and I've never been paid. That's wrong. And if I can prove my case, That'll open the door for a lot of guys less fortunate than me.
0: In February 1988, a federal district judge ruled against the lawsuit, citing treaty limitations. The 1952 peace treaty with Japan included an agreement for no damage claims against Japan. In other words, POWs couldn't sue for the bad treatment they suffered at the hands of Japanese guards. However, Bobby's lawyer argued that his client sought compensation for his labor, not damages. Bobby appealed the case to a circuit court in Atlanta and expected the hearing to be held in July 1988. Tragically, Bobby's pursuit of justice ended before then. On May 30, 1988, Memorial Day, he passed away in St. John, Florida. He was 66 years old. Here's his daughter Jean again.
1: He died exactly a month after he walked me down the aisle. When he walked me down the aisle for my wedding, he told somebody that afternoon, he said, that is the longest walk I ever took, which was poignant for a Bataan Death March survivor. So I knew it meant a lot to him. So my kids never knew their grandpa, but the stories that I have and the things that I've shared, they love him. When my son got married, seven years ago, he wore the purple heart on the inside of his vest to honor his grandpa. And it just made me cry.
0: (laughs) Today he rests at the Santa Fe National Cemetery in New Mexico, where Jack is also interred. Two amazing brothers, united in military service and war, and together again in rest. Bobby's legal quest for labor compensation, while unresolved in his lifetime, stands as a testament to the enduring impact of his wartime experience. Beyond that, Jean says of her father's legacy,
1: I know that my children understand that they can face anything because in their blood runs the blood of a survivor. Just to know that you have that in your blood, the strength and the stamina. When I was young, kids would tell me, You know, it's his own fault because he joined the army. I would look at them and think, you have the freedom to say that because he fought for your freedom to say that. So just having that inner strength, I guess, is what it is. And faith that everything is survivable. No matter what the world throws at you, you can overcome it.
0: Jack's daughter, Suzanne, shared similar thoughts about her father.
1: he didn't look upon himself as a hero or any sort of thing like that at all. He was just a person doing his duty for his country. That he did it with his brother was very special to us.
0: Two stalwart, brave men that their families have every right to be extremely proud of. While Bobby and Jack were beginning the long march up Bataan, other Allied soldiers continued to be captured in other parts of the peninsula. Among them were 400 officers of the Philippine Army. But these men didn't even make it to the march. Instead, Japanese leaders ordered that they all be executed. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Jack and Bobby Aldrich on the Left Behind website and Facebook page and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are all in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the 200th Coast Artillery, I suggest the book Beyond Courage, One Regiment Against Japan by Jack's second wife, Dorothy Cave. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. Word of mouth is the best way that people learn about new podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Mike Davis, Jake Herrenberg, Tyler Harmon, and Paul Sutherland. Special thanks to Jean Gary, Suzanne Delaware, and Jack Aldrich Jr. for sharing their time, memories, and pictures of their fathers. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with the tragic massacre of Filipino officers by Japanese forces.